This morning we are going to read the sermon passage from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32. It is sometimes known as the Song of Moses. Let's commence reading from verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distilled as the dew. Like the gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A word, God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him, and they are no longer his children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and a twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your, God, your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. And he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling ways of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that steals up his nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on his pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made his ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. And he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very fines of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. He grew fat, stout, and slick. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that had never known, to new gods that have come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spun them. Because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation. Children in whom there 
is no faithfulness. They gave me jealous with what? Is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of shore, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountain. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venoms of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword will bereave, and indoors terror for young men and women alike, the nursing child with the men of grey hairs. I have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocations by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did it. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand it. They would discern their later end. How could one have chased a thousand and two who have put two ten thousands to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord have given them up? For their rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents and the crude venom of ass. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot should sleep. For the day of the calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have reckoned compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remem- remembering, uh, remaining, born or free, then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, If I sharpen my flashing sword and with my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. And with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy.
Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up this mountain of the Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for possession. And die on the mountain which you go up. And be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hall and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land I'm giving to the people of Israel. May God bless his word to us. Heavenly Father, thank you again that you are a God who speaks, who reveals your goodness and kindness, your character to us through your word, who reveals your will to us through your word. So we ask, Father, for your Spirit's help this morning to hear this word, that our, our busy hearts and our busy minds will be cleared for the moment to be able to hear this powerful word. And that, let we ask, Father, for your Spirit's work, that this word may resonate with us, that it may call us to repentance, to confess our failures before you, but to lean on you and ultimately to lean on your Son, whom we find forgiveness and reconciliation. Father, we ask that you will help us to hear this word well, and I ask for your Spirit's help as well this morning. I am feeling a bit frail, a bit weaker than normal, but I ask for your Spirit's help to speak clearly and passionately and rightly from this passage as I ought, for we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to play a quick game. We're going to guess the national anthem by the lyrics alone, okay? So I'm going to start off with a really easy one. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? Which national anthem does this country belong to? Yell it out. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the United States? That is correct. All right. Uh, here's one for the kids. I just want the kids to answer this. Okay? It's an easy one. That was an easy one, but here's this one. For those who've come across the seas, we, ah, very good. 
That's Australia. That is the, in the second verse of our national anthem. All right, smarty pants. <laughs> See if you can get this one. This one's a bit harder. Tonight we man the Bierna Boyle. In Aaron's cause come woe or wail. Mid cannons roar and rifles peal, we'll chant a soldier's song. Anyone can, can anyone guess where this is from? Someone caught it. Ireland. It is from Ireland. All right. Uh, last one. One more, one more, one more. If people don't get this, I'll be a little bit disappointed. Right? My country, my native land, the people living united and progressive, may God bestow blessing and happiness. May our ruler have a successful reign. This is actually a translation. It is from Malaysia. Yeah. All right, how did you go? How did you go? All right. So when, when you think about the national anthem of a country, uh, you know, a country, it's the national anthem of a country is a song that every citizen should know. It's supposed to inspire it's supposed to raise national pride. We usually hear uh, the national anthem at important events. So, for instance, like when the King of England was crowned, at one of the highest points in that ceremony, they sang the national anthem, which is now God Save the King. We hear it at sporting events, most commonly during the gold medal ceremony at the Olympics. Who among the students here remembers that one singular brilliant moment that you've never had repeated again, when Joseph Schooling beat Michael Phelps, the greatest swimmer of all time, in the 100-meter butterfly and setting a new Olympic record. Who remembers that, right? When the Singaporeans saw that moment and they saw their son grab that gold medal and they heard the national anthem, national pride swelling up in them. I can see it right now in your eyes. <laughs> the national anthem is supposed to be about the greatness of a nation. It's supposed to lift the people up, inspire greatness in them. Now, if you didn't know, the Bible reading we just had is meant to be the national anthem of Israel. In, uh, here's what God says about it in chapter 31, verse 19. So you've got your Bibles there open in 32. Good. We're going to scan through it. Jump back with me to chapter 31, verse 19. 31 verse 19. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. It's a, it's a song. It's given to the people to have it on their mouths as they enter the promised land. It's the national anthem. But as you may have picked up from the Bible reading... It's a song about the impending, disappointing, and yet utterly predictable failure of Israel to listen to God. It's about their failure to obey and the judgment of God that will pour out on them. Cheery, isn't it? Well, not exactly the stuff to get national pride going. But in some ways, that's exactly the point. This national anthem is not about rallying the people. It's a song that lays out God's case against his people, a case that they will have to answer for. And yet within it, 
there's also these hints that things will turn around for them. See, despite how bad, despite how corrupt they were, God was going to restore them in the end. See, as we go through these verses, we're going to see why God has given the, His people this song, what it teaches them uh, about, and what it teaches the people of God about who God is. Now, the song begins on a fairly nice note. So have a look at, you kind of glance over at chapter 32, verse 2, right? In that, in verse 2, we read that the song is like drops of rain, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. If you didn't hear, this summer in Australia is going to be rough. We have officially entered the El Nino phase, which basically means in Australia, it's going to be hot and it's going to be dry. There are going to be drought conditions, very likely. So picture a drought-parched land that is then given rain, rain to quench its thirst, rain to make the grass green, and not rain like a torrential thunderstorm that we get used to here in Brisbane with flash flooding. No, this is a gentle, soothing rain that waters everything nicely so that it grows and flourishes. See, that is what this song, this song is like for the people. It is something that is incredibly good for them. And it's meant to be life-giving, just like rain in a drought. Which makes you wonder then how the bad news is going to be life-giving. Well, let's turn to that and find out now. So verses 4 to 5 we have a basic theme for the song. Some people think that this may even have been the chorus. It begins in verse 4, describing God as a rock. God is the rock. It's, it's a picture that is used to describe God five times in this song. God is the rock. You're meant to picture a big boulder. Sometimes we see this image in the Bible, and it's meant to tell us that God is a place of refuge and safety. But here, it carries this idea of God being strong and immovable. Read again how he's described in verse 4. The rock, his, way is, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Right, perfect, without blemish, never does any wrong. All his ways are justice. Everything he does is right. This is important to remember because of what is said next in verse 5. If God is perfect and just, well, his people are the exact opposite. Have a look at verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. This is what God's people are like. They are nothing like God. Even though they were created to be God's people, they have spit on their maker and turned their backs on him. This is a powerfully tragic line. You remember the national anthems are meant to inspire people? But here is this song with a deeply realistic understanding of what people are like. This song then moves from, into verses 6 to 14 to build this picture of how bad things have become. It begins with how God has so lovingly created and cared for his people. Glance with me at verse 6, second half of it. God is their father who created them, who made them and set them up. You jump down to verses 8 to 9, and there we see how God made everyone 
but he chose Israel to be his special people. I'll read it out. Verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. You got this kind of echo back to chapter 6 in Deuteronomy. God made everyone. He placed them all on earth and he divided up the borders for people. But then he set his eyes on Israel called Jacob in verse 9, and he set his heart on them. And he chose them, not because they were the biggest nation, nor because they were strong or anything like that. Remember his words from chapter 6, God chose Israel because he loved them, and he was keeping his promises to their forefathers. But then see how much he cared for them. Verse 10, chapter 32, verse 10. He found them in the desert, in a wasteland. He then circled around them and cared for them at the end of verse 10. At the end of verse 10, they're described as the apple of his eye. They were so special to him, so dear to him. Verse 11 pictures God like an eagle, coming down and spreading his wings over them to protect them. Then in verses 12 to 14, there's a picture after picture of how God cared for them and gave to them generously, guiding them, providing food for them, milk and meat. At the end of verse 14, the the finest of wheat, the best of the wine. Oh, how he cared for his people. He found an abandoned orphan in the middle of a wasteland and he picked the child up He washed off the dirt and the filth. He nursed him back to good health. He gave him clothing and fed him well. So how do the people of Israel respond to such love and care from God? Have a look at verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Uh, Jeshurun is a a nickname. It's meant to mean one who is upright or righteous, which is here poetic irony because they are nothing like that at all. Instead, they grew fat. Their wealth and prosperity led them to forsaking God. Moses warned them multiple times previously that they were not to think themselves so highly. Like when they got into the land and enjoyed the wealth and the riches of the land, they were not to say to themselves, we did this. We got this by our own strength and power. That is the danger of wealth. It makes the wealthy think more highly of themselves than they ought. They get comfortable and they think they do not need God, forgetting that it was God who blessed them in the first place. And so they forgot God and scoffed at the rock. They forgot, and then they go after other gods. Verses 16 to 18 spell out this journey. Uh, It's not as though Israel stopped worshipping. It's it's that their worship moved on to the wrong things. I met a couple on Thursday at a wedding I was conducting. I had actually previously met them through church. But over the recent years, they had stopped going. Church was now low on their priority list, and they knew it. But it's not that they stopped worshipping. They didn't stop worshipping. 
they were now worshipping their sleep on Sunday mornings. They were worshipping their comfort and their lifestyle, their personal freedom to do what they wanted to do. Humans never stop worshipping. Israel never stopped worshipping. They turned their backs on God, but then they turned to something else. And that's what humans are like in general. Okay, take a step back for a moment. Uh, what have we got so far in this song? Right? God is a loving, caring, creator God. He's made his people special. He has cared for them with tender affection and the love of a father. But his people have rejected him. They've spit on him and worshipped other things instead of God. With me so far? All right. So how does God respond to this new worship? Verse 19 onwards has God responding. He sees it and he spurns them. He gets angry. But his first act is to hide his face from them. See it there in verse 20. I will hide my face from them. When, God's face, when God faces his people, they receive goodness and generosity. But then when he hides his face, he takes that all away. And they are left with, a, with all they are left with are dumb and useless idols. What good does it to worship a dumb and useless idol? In October of 2022, a Filipino woman found out the hard way. Four years earlier, she bought, she purchased a little green statue of what she thought was Buddha. She prayed to the Buddha and was devout. And then four years later, found out from a friend that it wasn't the statue of Buddha that she was praying to, but a statue of DreamWorks animated character Shrek. (laughs) Do you see the resemblance? Now that's funny, because you know that Shrek isn't going to be blessing her anytime soon. But there's a sharp edge to that story that reminds us. Idolatry is a terrible way to try and connect with God. You're trying to make the invisible visible. You're trying to make God who is spirit into a thing you design and create. You bring the infinitely majestic God down to pocket-sized. You tame the all-powerful God, and you allow to get dusty the eternally glorious. And then you bow down to this little thing. How does God respond? Have a look at verse 22. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young men and women alike, the nursing child with, and with the man of gray hairs. Friends, it is a terrible 
thing. It is a horrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. National anthems are meant to inspire hope. In my search of national anthems during the week, I found out that Ukraine's national anthem begins with this line. The glory and freedom of Ukraine has not yet perished. Not yet. What a great irony that is, given that they're, they're singing this song as they continue to be at war with Russia. But this national anthem for Israel isn't inspiring that much hope. So far, it's been rather depressing. That is until verse 34. In a surprising move, God turns the fortunes of Israel around, declaring that vengeance is mine in verse 35. God declares that all the hardship that he sends upon them will be lifted. Uh, Take a look at verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. What a turnaround. When they were brought to their lowest, God will then lift them up. And he will do it with one express purpose. Have a look at verse 37. Then he, that is God, will say, Where are their gods? the rock in which they took refuge, who who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. Where is your Shrek statue now? In one sense, it's an unnecessary contest. The real and true and living God versus a small, mute, dumb idol who can neither speak nor act. Yet it's a necessary one for the hearts of his wayward people. Idolatry is a dead end. It leads nowhere. It offers nothing. You believe it will give you help, but nothing is able to be given. All idolatry is like that, whether it's a statue or a metaphorical idol. So the idol of money and financial security that promises that you'll be kept safe And so you work your butt off to the neglect of your family, your friends, and your worship of God. But in the end, it will all disappear. You can't take any of it with you when you die. The idolatry of status, whether it's from good grades or showing off your financial success, it promises you importance. But it's so temporary. Because there's always the next test. There's always another student who will do better. There's always someone in a better position than you. Idol worship is a default setting in our hearts, our sinful hearts. The theologian John Calvin was so right when he said that the heart is a perpetual idol factory. We make up so many things to worship other than God. But at the end of the day, we, the worship, but at the end of the day, worship of them leads to a dead end. They cannot rise up and help when we are brought low. Only God, the rock and refuge, can save and protect. And he will not only vindicate himself against these false gods, he will also resurrect his people. Verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. 
I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Again, we got this kind of echo from last week. Right? God is the one who will give his people a new heart so they can actually love and obey God. But before he will do that, he will bring them low. And note the order of the verbs here in verse 39. I kill, then I make alive. I wound, then I heal. And when God does this, no one can stop him. He knows his people, and none can be snatched out of his hands. But this is important to notice. As you're kind of glancing over the the entire chapter, notice one thing. Notice what Israel has done to deserve this. And there is nothing in the passage to say. There is nothing in the song that tells us what Israel has done to deserve restoration. The silence is clear. We know they have done nothing to deserve this. When God acts to restore them, it is sheer, undeserved kindness and grace from God. Now, at the end of the song, Moses reminds Israel what they need. They need to remember all of his words, his song, and everything he said in the past 30 chapters. He tells them in verse 46, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. Make sure that these words are in the control seat of your life. Make sure you do it today. Not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow. But as long as it is called today, then you are to listen to God's word and obey. He says in verse 47 that these words are no empty word for you, but your very life. These words are what will give you meaning and purpose. Don't look for meaning and purpose anywhere else. Don't follow after anyone else. All you need is what God has given you. And that's an important to remember because the very next thing that God tells Moses to do is to die. In verses 48 to 52, God says to Moses, go up to this mountain here, go up there, take a look at the promised land because you can't go in. Die here on the mountain as you look on what you're missing out on. I mean, that sounds a bit harsh, but remember, it's a strong reminder for everyone. Moses was not allowed to set foot in that promised land because he had really messed up. He had failed to treat God as holy. And as one of God's leaders, he was punished severely because he should have known better. And with Moses dying on the mountain, Israel had given a new leader in Joshua, but what they needed the most was to keep listening to God. He had spent, they had spent 40 years in the wilderness with Moses. Joshua was old, and he wasn't going to be around forever either. So Israel and their children and their children's children needed to listen to God. And this song was going to be their constant reminder. This anthem would remind them, when you fail, God will punish you but he will restore you. But do you notice that there's something missing in the song? How can God judge his people and then turn around and just forgive them? How can he show mercy without contradicting his justice? 
See, God can't just go, judgment, judgment, judgment. Okay, that's enough. Now, mercy, mercy, mercy. He can't do that because he is infinitely holy. He is infinitely perfect. And sin is infinitely offensive to him. It is a stink greater than durian. More odious than rotting food. More powerful than fresh manure on your garden. The only thing that can satisfy God's infinite offense is a payment of infinite value. A ransom of greatest worth. Only then can the song Israel sings switch from judgment to mercy, from deserved justice to undeserved grace. What offering is worthy enough to be given? Well, in your Bibles, turn with me to the end of the story. We're going to go right to the end, the very last book of the Bible. And we're going to read another song, a song sung by the chorus of heaven, a song where we see the infinitely valuable offering, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Look at this new song. A song about how God's anger and justice are flipped to grace and mercy. A song about the infinitely valuable offering of the blood of Jesus. The blood that ransoms people for God. There is a big problem that all people have before God. We have spit on his goodness and generosity towards us. But Jesus comes and he pays that penalty for us. And this song is sung only by those who trust Jesus. It is only for those who trust that Jesus' blood has saved them. So, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're not sure, you've got the same problem as the people of God who rebelled against him in this song. You've treated God in a similar way. You've rejected his goodness and his generosity in your life. You've rejected how he has provided for you. It is a deadly serious thing to reject God in this way. But there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness and a turnaround from God. He offers you a solution, a solution that you couldn't provide. You couldn't earn. He offers you his son 
so that you could be forgiven. Will you take that? Will you take that or will you try and face God's judgment alone? Because that is not a fight you can win. Your opponent is offering you grace. Take it. Ask Jesus to forgive your sins and he will do it. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, it's a simple, the simple takeaway from this sermon today, from the book of Deuteronomy, is to take the invitation that this book is pointing towards, the invitation in Jesus to be forgiven and reconciled to God. So would you do that today? Would you choose life today? Now, there's another group of people I have to talk to here. Um, it's a group of people exemplified in another person I met on Thursday at this wedding. Another person who said that he was a Christian, but he hadn't been to church in years and he hadn't been reading his Bible in as long. I asked him if he thought that this was a problem. And to him, it wasn't. He didn't read his Bible, he didn't go to church, but he believed that he was fine. He even called himself a strong Christian. Now, I'm thinking in my head, if someone is refusing to eat food and they were physically wasting away, you couldn't call that person a healthy person. But that's what he was doing. He had false assurance. No Bible reading, no gathering with God's people, and he thought he was fine because of some vague beliefs that God was with him and God's plans were always right in his life. Now, I walked away from that conversation quite sad that no matter what I said, nothing could convince him that he needed to hear from God or that he needed to keep gathering with other believers. He thought he was fine. And as much as that conversation saddened me, I realized that there are probably some people, even here right now, who would follow that path. If you stopped coming to church or reading your Bible, nothing in your life would change. Is that you? All I can do is appeal to you again from what Moses has been saying throughout this book. Before you is a choice between life and death. If you turn to life in this world, if you turn to a life of comfort, the idols of prestige and status, if the priority of God in your life lowers, then there will come a day when all of that is completely stripped away. When Jesus returns, he will take back everything he has given you, and what will you have left? Don't trade temporary significance and security for eternal loss. That is not an equal trade. Choose life by hearing and obeying God's word. Now, there's one final group of people, the rest of us, those who are followers of Jesus. Some of us are going well, some of us are struggling and feeling weak. As we, need to, as we come to the close of the book of Deuteronomy, we see what God's people need. They need the written word of God, and they need a song. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever wondered, 
Have you ever wondered why God gave his people song? Why is prose and spoken word not enough to declare our praises to God? There's something about song that takes the truths of God's word and connects it deeply to our hearts. Truth is remembered best when it's put to a tune. Now, here's an example I often use with the musicians in training here at church. You think of the Wesley brothers. So you've got this guy called John Wesley. John Wesley was a famous preacher. He essentially started the Methodist church. In his lifetime, it's calculated that he preached upwards of 40,000 sermons, often riding horseback between locations between each sermon. 40,000 sermons. Can anyone here quote anything from one of his sermons? No, I didn't think so. I can't either. I'm asking a question I can't even answer. But he had a younger brother by the name of Charles Wesley. So Charles Wesley was a musician and hymn writer. He wrote over 3,000 hymns. Work with me here for a second. I'll sing a line. You sing the rest. Ready? And can it be that I should gain... Okay. <laughs> Hark the herald angels sing. See? Truth is so powerful when it is set to music. It is a powerful memory tool, not just for our heads, but for our hearts. And that's why Moses leaves his people with a song, a national anthem. Christians don't have one singular anthem, but each song that we sing is there to build us up and to build each other up. Our singing is corporate. It's not for, the, for our individual benefit, but for everyone's growth and encouragement. Now, we may not have an anthem, but how much do we value singing? One way we can tell is the volume of our singing. If you didn't know, I track the decibel readings for our congregational singing, just to kind of work out what's going on. Now, sometimes I notice that it's low. Maybe it's because our voices are not quite as strong. Maybe it's because we're not in the mood. But you know what will lift that mood? Singing loudly. But like Moses' song, it's, it's not so much about the loudness of the tune, but the content that matters. This final song reminded Israel of their weakness and their failures, and they also sang of their one and only hope, their God to restore them. The gospel message that we sing each week is meant to ring out and remind us constantly of these truths. So do we value our time singing together in rejoicing and encouraging each other with our voices? Let, let us not be content to wander into church during the second or third song. Now, I'm saying that and I'm not looking at anyone directly because you know that you, what you did today. But let us make every effort, effort to sing these truths together. We have a song that is, we have songs that are better than Moses' song. 
songs about how we are forgiven in Christ, songs about our eternal hope, songs about, our undeserved about the undeserved grace of God. So let us sing these truths with joyful gladness. Isn't it wonderful that in the book of Deuteronomy, a book about law, we are given a song to finish, a gospel song. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your wisdom, you have spoken to, through, through your servant Moses, given the book of Deuteronomy, laid down your law, but you have given your people in the end an encouragement to sing. A song that outlines not only their hope, their weakness, and their failure, but their hope. So, Father, we were reminded then in the gospel of what our weaknesses and our failures are, how we constantly fail to listen to you, how we have turned our backs on you, and how you still love us more, and how you shower us with your grace. And so we ask that you would help us to sing that truth, to hold on to it together, that our time together as a church, as your people, will not be lost that we will not let those among us to walk down the path of turning away from you, of turning to the idols of this world, idols that do not give any hope or security. We ask, Father, that you will help us to do these things together for our encouragement and our joy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.